Piggly Wiggly I knocked over in Yazoo. I thought you said you was innocent of those charges. Well, I was lying. And the preacher said that that sin's been washed away too. Neither God nor man's got nothing on me now. Come on in, boys. The water is fine. <laughs> oh, I love that scene. And I think we should all be giddy with joy over the fact that our sins have been forgiven. This is the most familiar verse in all of Scripture. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Many of us most likely remember it as the first verse we put to memory. But interestingly, its very popularity has had a number of negative side effects. And one of those is that it has overshadowed the five verses that come immediately after it. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through Him. He who believes in Him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. This is the judgment, that the light has come into the world, and men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light, and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light, so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. And the reason I think it's a negative side effect of verse 16 to overshadow these verses is I believe these verses are not only the context for John chapter 3 and not only for the whole book of John, but I think for the entire Bible. And this morning, I want to spend time examining these verses then we'll wrap up our exploration of the parable of the minds, which we've been looking at now. This is our fourth week here. Because I think, I really think as we look at these other verses, if they are the context for all of Scripture, then they will certainly help us understand, understand what seems to be a very difficult ending to a very difficult parable that we've been looking at. Remember the ending when he asked for the unfaithful servants to be brought in, in front of him and killed. So, let's look at these. So Jesus first asserts that God so loves the world and everyone in it with a self-sacrificing and an eternal love. Then he makes this incredible statement. He says, for God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. By itself, this is an incredible statement. For certainly it shatters or calls into question our, our often held idea that God is terrifyingly angry with us and is just waiting till the end <coughs> time so he can punish us, right? It sure doesn't seem that way. But when we consider John chapter 5 verse 22 alongside with this, our theological world can be turned completely upside down. For not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son. How... <coughs> The Father doesn't judge. He lets Jesus judge. But when Jesus comes, Jesus doesn't judge, he saves. Wow. Or a better word would be grace. Unbelievable. I, I didn't write this. St. John did. For not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son. But God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but the world might be saved See already? Lifetime of theology can start being turned upside down when we really look closely at Scripture. But what of judgment, people? 
Certainly the Bible speaks of judgment. Yes, it does. Jesus himself speaks of it, and he helps us understand it better in the very next verse that he says. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. So, Jesus came to reveal to us that God is a God of love. That God would rather die himself to save us from death. He would rather do that than to punish us with the death we deserve. And in fact, that's what he's done. He has saved us from our just deserts. Right? The world has been saved. On the cross, Jesus says, it is finished. Last call, current call, done. Fat lady has sung. The house lights are on. Stadium's closed. Elvis is out of the building. However you want to say it. It's over. Finished. The world's saved. And now everyone can go home to heaven, to the kingdom of God, here and now, there and then, however you want to understand that concept. All we have to do is believe in that revealed God. In that revealed love, in that revealed grace. Receive the salvation he died to give us. And if we do, we are not and never will be judged. Think about that. Like Delmar. All our sins past, present, and future, have been washed away. Now, before you start to fall asleep for me and think, yeah, David, we all know this. We, we, we're all Christians. Just try to stay with me. Because this isn't the gateway to our life. It is our life. It is Christianity. So, if we refuse to believe in that God, a God of grace and mercy, and forgiveness and love, then Jesus says that we are judged already. For faith in any other God, including some Christian ideas of God, <laughs> is faith that at some level we can save ourselves. Or we need to try. Or maybe we don't really need saving at all. It is faith that transactions, that good works, that moral superiority, that correct creeds and doctrines, that balancing our accounts, that being sorry enough to manipulate God into forgiving us, or that offering Him the proper gifts will get us saved, etc., 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 and on and on and on. And all of this faith <coughs> is useless because there is no God that wants, expects, or demands any of those things. So it's all ultimately faith in a God that does not exist. There is only one God who willingly and without any coercion from us died for us to save us. So if we don't accept it, then we'll never have it. Then we're judged already. Alright? Jesus continues. This is the judgment. That the light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. Right, I'm going to let Robert Farrakhapon comment on this verse because he does it so brilliantly. Yes, Jesus says, there is indeed a judgment, and that judgment still stands because the law and the prophets I came to fulfill still stand. There, 
there is a judgment because the law remains forever your beauty. And when I come to you in my fulfillment of all its righteous demands, I will only make the ugliness of your disobedience look a thousand times worse. But I do not judge you. You judge yourself by taking your stand on the law's demands rather than on my righteousness, which is yours for the believing. I do not condemn you. The law does. But I have lifted the curse of the law and given you a yoke that is easy and burden that is light. All you need is simply to trust my word that in fact I do not condemn. But if you insist on running from the light of that word into the darkness of your own guilt, well, then I cannot help you. That is a powerful understanding of what St. John was trying to say when he was giving us Christ's words. When we insist on a God who is not loving, who is not merciful, who is not full of grace, and when we insist on that God, not just for ourselves, but for anyone, think about it. When we insist that that is God, not loving, not merciful, not full of grace, then we stand in our own judgment. Because we would rather the law, as we understand it, be our God, than the only God who could ever save us, Jesus Christ, be our God. Does that make sense? There is judgment. But I don't think God is going to be riding a white horse with an AK-47, slaughtering his enemy. But if that's the God we insist on, well, maybe we just might meet that God. So Jesus continues. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. So the evil, given the whole context of what is being said, is our own unbelief in this God Jesus revealed. And that keeps us in deep darkness. We do not need to be sent to any dark place. We have chosen to take up residence there ourselves. And Jesus ends with, but he who practices the truth comes to the light, so that his deeds may be manifest as having been wrought in God. So the original here, practices the truth, is does the truth. So what is the truth? The truth is, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. There's the truth. So what is doing the truth? Well, doing the truth is, whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. He who believes in him not is not. He who believes in him is not judged. There's doing the truth. God is a self-sacrificing God of grace, mercy, and love. <coughs> believing that that's what God is. See, I, to just bring this into context, so I'm in the middle of binge-watching The Sopranos, and the other night I was watching this incredible episode, and what happened was, so Tony Soprano's a head gangster, and one of his guys got shot up pretty bad, and clinically was dead while they were operating on him. He survived, he came back, and as soon as he was able to talk, he asked for Tony and this other guy, Paulie, to come in. And he said, listen, guys, I died, and I, all that stuff, I, I, I saw this thing, I, and I was in hell. 
this really shook up Tony. And Tony was like, well, what happened? He says, well, they told me when I die for real, this is where I'm coming, and you guys are too. So Tony goes to see a shrink, and they're having this conversation. And what was so fascinating to me was he was telling the story that his, his, his nephew had died and went to hell. And she said, and, and said that that's where he's going when he dies. And, and she said, well, how do you feel about that? And he said, well, he's not going to hell. And she said, oh? He said, yeah, he doesn't deserve hell. And she's like, oh. He's like, yeah, only those really bad people deserve hell. You know, those pedophiles and, and people that rape and people that oppress and the Hitlers and the Pol Pots. And he had this incredibly concise explanation of who deserves hell. And it wasn't him. And he, he was very well versed because she looked at him like, well, what about you? You know, you're in the gangster that. He's like, aren't you listening to me? I don't deserve it either. I'm a soldier. I don't kill innocent people. I'm in a war and I kill other soldiers. We understand what we're doing. And it was just a fascinating episode and, and many more things happened in it. Right, with his, anyway, I was just watching this and it was just so fascinating how everyone, even us, have our understanding who deserves what? It's not about us. It's about God who loves us. You know, it, that scene, I love it so much, it's easy to laugh at. Delmar was right. He was even able to confess the truth. Delmar, you said you didn't do that. Oh, I lied. But it's okay, because that's forgiven. So, this, this is the context for all of Scripture. This is the rest of the story to steal from Paul Harvey. The rest of the story. Many people want this to be part of the story, or even equal to other parts of the story. But I suggest that's a misreading of Scripture. Jesus was clear that he was God. Therefore, it follows that he is the most perfect revelation of God that we are going to have. He is the rest of the story. And any other understanding of God that doesn't come here for the rest of the story, I think, is missing. James Douglas wrote this. The truth proclaimed by Christianity is the truth of a living person. The claim of the gospel is that God's truth has become incarnate and redemptive has been revealed in the person and life of Jesus. And Karl Barth added this, if Jesus Christ is the word of truth, then the truth of God is exactly this and nothing else. To read scripture any other way, I think not only limits our understanding of it, but can lead us into the same judgment that these people who do not believe are in. With that in mind, let's consider the ending of our parable, for it really does need the rest of the story. Because here's how our parable ends. But those enemies of mine who do not want me to be king over them, bring them here and kill me in front of them. Now, most people read this difficult verse and jump to all sorts of conclusions that are not even in the text. The king certainly gives this command, but do we know what happened? No, we don't. This is the end of the parable. Jesus ended. 
right there. And if you study Jesus' parables carefully, more often than not, he ends them mid-sentence. For us to figure out what's next. Like the parable of the prodigal son. Did the older son come into the feast? We don't know. We don't know. It just ended. But that does not mean this is not an important verse. That's what some people do. Some scholars argue that this is verse is a translation problem. And they suggest it was put in by a scribe later and never said by Jesus. I think those problems are part of some modern translations, but I disagree that it happens here. See, it is true Jesus was not simply a prophet, but he often spoke as a prophet, didn't he? And this makes perfect sense to have the king say this in the context of this story. For why did prophets speak anything? To wake people up. To shake them out of their indifference. Right? To shake them out of their apathy. Read the prophets. They were sort of... They were on fringe. They said a lot of things that should wake people up. This is a warning. You don't want me to be your king? Christ seems to be shouting. Then you're going to be out of luck because I'm the only king in town. Believe in me or suffer the judgment you are already under. This possible scene should wake up his audience then and it should wake up his audience now. However, having said that, we do scripture and God a grave disservice when we understand this as an accurate portrayal of Christ's eschatology. As though Jesus was talking about what's going to happen at the end times. Klein Snodgrass points this out brilliantly. Parables are prophetic instruments, and this is prophetic language used to shock and to force thought, and it is not to be brought straight across unchanged reality. Such an important thing to remember when reading the parable. Or, as Elder Luz writes, one speaks of future judgment for the sake of the present. In other words, this could be the future, but change now and it does not have to be. You see, this is one of the very important parts of the story, but it requires the rest of the story to understand it. Okay? Here we go. This is a fact. The wages of sin is death. Just as the king gave that command is a fact. But that's not the rest of the story. The rest of the story is, but the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. That's the rest of the story. Luke himself who recorded this parable, gives us a hint as to what the rest of this parable story may have looked like after the enemies were dragged in. In chapter 6, he writes, Jesus says, Love your enemies. Do good to them and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High because He is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful, just as your Father is. Maybe that gives us a hint as to what happened 
after the unfaithful servants were dragged in. Remember, by the time Luke was writing, he already knew the rest of the story. Jesus had died to save the world. And as Klein Snodgrass points out, so, so brilliant and should always be considered when thinking about any kind of judgment. Rather than doing any slaughter, Jesus is the one slaughtered. The rest of the story. Bring those unfaithful servants in front of me. Maybe they don't realize I'm the one who died. Man is about judgment for sure. God is about grace. I don't think we should confuse that <clears throat> at all. Of course, again, grace is simply so unfair, many of us refuse to believe in such a God, like we talked about last week, or we qualify it. We want to qualify it. That's why I was pointing out those verses and some of the things that those other theologians said. If you want to qualify God, qualify God with the cross. Don't use other understanding of God to qualify the cross. Don't marginalize the central truth of Scripture. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. But it's unfair. Grace. Even in this parable, we heard the cries of unfairness, didn't we? Then he said to those things, I take his mind away from him and give it to one. Sir, they said he already has ten. Even they can't handle the unfairness of grace. It's like the parable of the vineyard workers. They all got paid the same whether they worked their butts off since sunrise or strolled in at the end of the day and got the same amount of pay. If grace was fair, wouldn't the king have given the minus to the guy who had five? It's not about us and our efforts. It's not about our goodness or our badness. It's about God's grace and what he does. He loves us. He forgives us. He has saved us. All we have to do is believe that. Live into radical relationship with this God who loves us. And then we can dance all the way into the kingdom that has already been granted us. We, we can be like Delmar, giddy with joy, and celebrate the greatest gift we could ever receive, grace. We can really live in radical relationship with God. As this nobleman was asking his servants to. And because of the same grace, we can then evidence that radical relationship, that faith in our lives by living radical relationship with those around us. Living grace and forgiveness and mercy into the lives of everyone in our life. Thanks be to God.